We're reading from the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. In your pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 810 and in the words behind me. So, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gets light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Amen. Amen, indeed. Please pray with me as we look at God's word together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for the gift of faith to know you. Lord, would you help us to know you more this morning? Would you help us as we think about not just what's behind us, but what's ahead of us, and what it will look like for us to remain faithful to you? Lord, we know you always keep your promises, and we praise you for that. May we be faithful as well, Lord, and would you show us what that looks like in your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we celebrate 40 years this morning, uh, I noticed in the checkout line at Market Basket this week the newest edition of Yankee Magazine celebrating its 80th anniversary uh, this month. And they did so by, by describing 80 gifts that New England has given to America. So from revolutionary trailblazers like uh, Sam Adams and James Otis, to scenic marvels like Jenny Farm or Crawford Notch or the Kankamagus Highway, to world-changing innovations like chemotherapy or chocolate chip cookies, the board game, the microwave, Invented at Raytheon, where some of you work. To the Frisbee. To literary giants like Nathaniel Hawthorne, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Emily Dickinson, Mark Twain, E.B. White, Robert Frost, John Updike, Dr. Seuss, Stephen King. But noticeably absent from Yankee's list, however, were the spiritual contributions that this region has made to America and to the world. Think of the first great awakening, the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, to the Haystack Revival, and pioneer missionaries like Anne and Adoniram Judson, other influential figures like David Brainerd, D.L. Moody, Elizabeth Elliot. In fact, the first governor of Massachusetts, John Winthrop, in a sermon detailing what he saw as the covenant relationship between the settlers in Massachusetts and God, famously said of New England, for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. And there is a sense in which that has been true. Uh, New England has long been a pace setter in countless ways. Education, scientific research, medicine, engineering, technology, literature, politics. 
but not so much in terms of religion these days. Unless we're talking about the decline of religion, in which case, yes, New England's very much been a pace setter for that. The land of the Great Awakenings is now one of the least religious regions in the entire country. We've all had the experience of driving along and you see this beautiful church building that's either vacant or been converted into business offices or condominiums, which kind of makes you ask, what happened to Winthrop's vision? Well, there's a sense in which Winthrop bit off more than he could chew. He wanted to realize through the state the particular and unique mission that Christ gave the church, in which case his was a project destined for failure. But what of the church's stewardship of that vision, of that mission? And more specific to our purposes this morning, what of Westgate's place in that vision to be a city on a hill? What will our gift our contribution be as a church? What will our contribution be to Christ, to our communities, to our country, or to the ends of the earth? God has uh, clearly blessed Westgate in countless ways over the last 40 years. So what are the next 40 or 80 or 120 or however long till the Lord returns? What will that look like? Because the reality is we cannot presume that just because God has used us in the past, we will therefore remain faithful in the future. Most of the historic churches in New England started on solid ground. Of those that still exist today, most will have an occupied pulpit that has been emptied of the gospel. And so what will it take for us, the congregation known as Westgate Church, to be faithful to our call and effective in our mission here in New England to the ends of the earth for generations to come? The answer is quite simple, depending on the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is what's going to keep us faithful, and the gospel is ultimately what makes us effective. We're going to see that this morning in the passage that inspired Winthrop and countless of Christ's followers in Matthew 5, 13 to 16 from the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't uh, closed your Bibles yet, I encourage you to open them back up to Matthew 5 as we look at this passage together. The Sermon on the Mount is a a collection of Jesus' teachings on what life looks like as part of God's kingdom, living under Jesus' rule and reign, under his authority. And the the whole sermon itself stretches from chapters 5 through 7. But we're jumping into a section that follows the the famous Beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, We heard those Beatitudes during Mark's prayer earlier. The the Beatitudes that outline the blessings of life in God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and so on. And those are there not so much as a how-to manual for the Christian faith, but more like a family portrait. Jesus, in the Beatitudes, shows his followers a picture. This is what life looks like when you're part of my family, when you belong to my kingdom, when you live under my reign. This is what true joy and comfort and blessing 
looks like the kind that are able to withstand the pain and sorrow of life in a fallen world. It looks like poverty of spirit, a brokenness that mourns over sin and knows our need for Jesus. It looks like meekness that trusts God to be in control, yet hungers and thirsts for everything to be made right. It looks like mercy and purity of heart, not being divided or deluded by the world. It looks like peacemaking, just as God offers peace to us through Jesus. And because living under God's reign means that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and not to the world around us, it looks like persecution sometimes when the world doesn't want Jesus' authority or anything to do with him. These are the kinds of people to whom God's kingdom belongs. This is the family portrait. But there are two ways that we can treat a family portrait in your home, a family picture. One way is to kind of treat that picture as a memory to be held onto and locked away. We we have a picture of our family and we maybe keep it on our computer or CD or we print it on a four by six piece of paper and stick it in a photo album to kind of keep underneath the coffee table or in the closet or a box or a drawer somewhere. Every now and then we we pull it out and we kind of smile and reminisce at how special it is. We maybe laugh at what we were wearing back then or something. But then eventually we put it away and we go on with life. That picture exists just for us and our personal nostalgia. And then there's the kind of family portrait that gets printed on a 20 by 30 canvas hung, you know, in some prominent place in your home, maybe over the fireplace or the dining room. And that picture is not there just for personal nostalgia. That is a portrait displayed for everyone to see. It's a celebration of your family and what they look like for others to see and enjoy and admire. When we come to verses 13 to 16, we see that that is the purpose of the family portrait that Jesus paints in the Beatitudes. It's not just a personal checklist of how I'm doing with God or a private reminder of how blessed we are to have Jesus. It is a picture that God wants to put on display for the whole world to see. A display of his beauty through his people. He says to his followers in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. God wants to show the world who he is through his children. Which means we have a mission as Jesus' church to display the beauty of Christ to the world. The imagery of light is, uh, is a common metaphor throughout the Bible. First and foremost, God is light, we're told, several places in Scripture. But God wants to shine his light through his people. And so even ancient Israel was called to be a light to the nations in Isaiah 42, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out from the prison those who sit in darkness. The problem there was that they had become blind themselves by the end of that chapter. And so Jesus comes as God in the flesh, as true Israel, to be the light that we were supposed to be but couldn't be. 
the true light of God. John 1 describes him as the true light that gives light to every man. Jesus is that light. And he wants us to shine that light for him. Now, of course, the metaphor of light uh, suggests something about the world that Jesus has placed his church in and called his church to. That the world around us is in darkness. Which can sound a bit, I don't know, arrogant and presumptuous for us to say. You know, the darkened heathen out there and here we are with the light to, to make everything better. Today, it's the church that's often the one accused of living in the dark ages, on the wrong side of history. The world, you know, around us, we're, we've descended from the Enlightenment. We've grown up. We've got incredible advances in medicine and technology and moral philosophy and social theory and so on. And yet, if Scripture is our guide, the clear assessment of Scripture is that apart from Christ, for all of the modern advances we enjoy... The world remains in spiritual darkness. There is a cloud covering it, blinding us, blinding the world to the world as it really is. A world created by God where God reigns over it through his son Jesus, who is a savior to all who seek refuge in him, but who will judge all who remain rebellious to him and his kingdom. There's a spiritual darkness that comes from what the Bible calls sin, disobedience to God. And so Jesus, when he comes and when he's described as a light, see what that picture is doing. You know, if, if you're plunged into a dark room, a two-watt bulb shines brightly. But Jesus doesn't come as a two-watt bulb. He comes as a blazing torch to give light to the darkness of this world, to deal with the problem of this world, the problem of sin. He came to live a life of faithfulness before his father because Adam had messed up and Israel had messed up and we mess up. He became our representative. He, he shows us what life is supposed to look like before God, how the world is supposed to work in righteousness and holiness in love and in sacrificing grace, but then he also comes to take our sin and disobedience, our rebellion on himself on the cross that we might be forgiven of that sin and through his resurrection have new life and actually become part of his family, be adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ. Jesus is the light, and this same king who is the true light John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. This same king tells his followers in Matthew 5 this audacious announcement, you are the light of the world. You think about it, I'm like, wait a second. I don't think I want that responsibility. But Jesus says to his followers, you are the light of the world. It is through his people that Jesus now shines his light. That's our mission, to make Christ known we are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden and so jesus says in verse 16 let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory not to you but to your father who is in heaven so we have a mission but the question this morning how can we be sure that the light we are shining that the light that others see when they look at us 
is the light of Jesus and not the light of something else? How can we be sure that it's not diluted or obstructed, that nothing gets in the way and blocks that light? How can we be faithful to our call and effective in our mission for generations to come? There are four temptations that I want to talk about in terms of either replacing or obstructing our light. Four things that can threaten both our faithfulness and our effectiveness in mission. The solution to which, again, is depending on the gospel of Jesus. So the first temptation is self-dependence. Self-dependence. To think that what we have to offer to the world as a church is really us instead of Jesus. Self-dependence. That can cause us to become unfaithful. You know, in celebrating an anniversary, as you think back over you know, the, the last four decades, it's easy to think of that time in terms of what we have accomplished for God. You know, for all the, our, our hard work, our generosity, our sound doctrine, our commitment. It's easy to think also about the next 40 years in terms of what we're going to accomplish for God. What we're going to do, our creativity, our programs, our resolve, we're going to change the world for Jesus. Now, the Christian life is not a passive life where we just kind of check out and, and, and you know, let go and let God or something like that. We are called to faithfulness and obedience. But there is nothing that qualifies us for ministry apart from what Christ has done in us and for us. And there is nothing that we have to offer the world apart from what Christ can do for them. We cannot forget that. There's nothing that we have to offer the world apart from what Christ can do for them. It is the gospel of Jesus, his work, his grace, his spirit that equips us and sanctifies us to make us useful for God. If you you look at Matthew's gospel, one of the most common things that Jesus fought against through his ministry was self-righteousness. A temptation to think that we've got it all together, that we've got it figured out, that as long as we kind of go through the motions on the surface, do the right religious thing, that, that God will approve of us and accept us because of our performance for him, and others will think that we're great. It's the kind of empty religiosity that was so common among the leaders of Judea during Jesus' days. Groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes. But Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not in terms of one-upping their hypocrisy but in the sense that the kind of righteousness God is looking for is not something painted on the surface, but something that comes from the heart, from a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus. In terms of the Sermon on the Mount, what will keep us shining the light of Jesus and not the light of us is by going back to and holding on to that first beatitude in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor in self. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says that poverty of spirit means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. Sinclair Ferguson says of the poor in spirit, they are the bankrupt of this world who know themselves to be so and who therefore trust in the Lord as their only hope of protection and deliverance. Only when you are poor in spirit, poor in self, can you be rich in Jesus. Only when we stop treasuring what we have and what we are and what we've accomplished and what we promise to accomplish, only when we stop treasuring that are we able to treasure Jesus and then offer him to the world. We're the light of the world, but the light is not our own greatness. It is the greatness of Christ in us. Our light, if you think of it, is, is reflective. It's like the moon's light. It doesn't come from the moon, but it reflects from the sun. That's the kind of light we shine out into the world. And only when we're honest about our sin and our weakness and utterly dependent on the sufficiency of God's grace through Christ will we be faithful to that call to shine our light. God doesn't need Westgate. But I sure am glad that he loves us and uses us. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation is separation. It's to disengage from the world for fear of persecution. First was self-reliance. The second is separation. It's getting a lot harder to be a faithful Christian in America. Now, you compare that to other countries around the world, and we're ridiculously blessed with the level of religious liberty that we have, but there are very clear signs that that is slowly eroding away. To identify ourselves as an evangelical church, as a church that takes the gospel seriously, that's what that word means, that's to risk being insulted, It's to risk being marginalized or labeled as judgmental or fundamentalist or hypocritical or bigoted and so on. But that opposition is to be expected if we're paying attention to what Jesus is saying. The very end of the Beatitudes, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's to be expected if we're going to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't want Jesus all the time. And therefore, sometimes we we think about what that means, being reviled, persecuted, marginalized. I'm not sure I want that. Do we really want to be known for that? And so instead of letting our light shine, we're tempted to kind of go incognito with our commitment to Christ, to to keep to ourselves and just kind of fly under radar. We're just going to do our own thing over here in the corner of Weston. You all, you know, go on, nothing to see here. Disengage from the world. But that would be to forfeit the mission God has given us, wouldn't it? It defeats the whole purpose of being a light. 
verse 15, Jesus says, you know, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You, know, you don't turn on a flashlight when you're camping and then leave it in your backpack. That's not what it's for. To try and hide the family portrait in the closet whenever somebody comes over kind of defeats the purpose of having a family portrait on the wall. We've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus. We will only be effective and faithful if we trust Christ enough to let him shine, even if that means opposition and persecution. How else will the neighborhood know? How else will your friends and family know if they don't see the picture, if they never experience the beauty of Jesus through what we say and how we serve? The third temptation we face in our mission is what's called syncretism. Rather than disengaging from the world, we try to reach the world by becoming like the world. That's what we mean by syncretism. We try to reach the world by becoming like the world. And that's what Jesus is warning against in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What does it mean? You know, the, the image of light of the world, that's a metaphor we can wrap our heads around. What's he mean when he's talking about being the salt of the earth? There are a number of different uses that salt had in the ancient world. Uh, some commentators have listed as many as 11 different things. Uh, but I think Jesus tells us what he's talking about because his concern is over the salt losing its taste, its flavor. If salt loses its flavor, it becomes useless. Every now and then I'll pick up a few cans of soup to keep in my office drawer so that when I don't have time to, when I forget my lunch and don't have time to get something or whatever, I've got, you know, my soup ready there. And, uh, about a year or so ago, I decided I was going to be healthy, and I bought a, a can of soup that said 50% less sodium on it. I nearly dumped it down the drain when I tasted it. If it hadn't been for the salt shakers conveniently hiding downstairs in the kitchen, it would, my lunch would have been a wash. It's salt that gives flavor to things, like soup. And so when that's watered down or diluted then it loses its flavor, and that's the picture here. The church loses its unique flavor, its contribution, its unique contribution to the world when it becomes diluted by the world. One of the frequent charges against Christianity today is that it's irrelevant, that it's outdated. It doesn't connect with where people are living. We're not sure why we would need something like that, and so on. And there's some honest questions behind some of those accusations, people trying to, to really wrestle with it. But it often results in the sort of pressure on the church to become more relevant or more attractive to the lost. Sinclair Ferguson puts it more sharply. He says, at times we fall into the trap of being blackmailed by a world that says, unless I find you attractive on my own terms, I will not respond to the message of the gospel. And we hear that, and so then we try and give them what they want. 
What will bring in the masses? We turn to marketing and such. You know, we need this program or this trend to kind of highlight so that we can then get them in and sneak into them somewhere the gospel that we think they need. The problem is that you win them to what you win them with. You win them to what you win them with. If in effort to win the world, we simply become like the world, whether by feeding consumerism or watering down our morality so that we can be less boring and more cool, then you have not won them to Jesus. We've won them to a baptized version of what they already have, which is as useless as soup without the salt. It's garbage. It does them no good. If we give up the one unique thing that we have to offer the world, the gospel of Jesus, that's when we actually become irrelevant to the world. We've lost our saltiness. And whatever else it is we think we can offer them, they can probably find it done a lot better elsewhere. You win them to what you win them with. So how are we going to be effective? We must continue to be a people of the word, taking the Bible seriously. We must continue to be a people of prayer, taking God seriously. And we must continue to try and win them to Jesus with Jesus. That's the light that we shine. The light that we have to shine is not the light of financial security or well-adjusted children or successful careers, though the gospel speaks to all of those things. Our light is not a new kind of Christianity that's not quite as boring or out of touch with the, what the world thinks. The light we shine is Jesus. Nothing more, nothing else, nothing less than Jesus Christ and the difference that he makes in our lives. But there's one more temptation that we can easily fall into in terms of compromising faithfulness or stunting our effectiveness in our call, and that's secondary things. The temptation to hold on to certain secondary things so tightly that they actually block the light of the main thing, which is Jesus, the one who we're trying to shine. Whenever any people seeks to live out the truth of the gospel, the Christian faith, they always do so within a particular cultural context. So, for instance, here in Westgate, we're speaking English right now. That's a cultural context. We are meeting in a relatively traditional style New England building. We have a relatively consistent uh, worship order of our order of our service. We use several different kinds of instruments when we sing. There are several different ministries that we hold Sunday morning throughout the week, some of them in the building, some of them in homes or local restaurants. And none of those things are bad. But none of those are essential to the gospel of Jesus. If you were to go overseas to Japan and say, no, you're doing it wrong because your building doesn't look like this, you know, you'd be foolish. But when some of those secondary things become primary to us, when a church begins to hold tightly to certain cultural forms, but those forms happen to be 
obstacles to our mission rather than assets, then we can begin to block the light of Jesus. Maybe because it's the way that we're doing something is so foreign to the mission field we're living in or so distracting that when they look at us, all they can see is this form. They can't actually see Jesus. If we are to remain faithful to our call for another 40, 80, or 120 years, we have to be willing to change as a church too. And that could be really hard for some of us. Not talking about changing our message. Not talking about changing the heart of our mission or the hope that we have to offer. But a willingness to change the way that we do some secondary non-gospel things. So as not to block the light of the main thing, which is the gospel of Christ. Churches have to be willing to change in secondary ways to be faithful to the main thing. One of the things that the elders and other church leaders have been discussing uh, recently is changing the way that we approach our non-Sunday morning ministries. So what we do when we're scattered from this building midweek. There are several challenges that we will face as a church moving forward. Some of those are cultural challenges. Some of those are, are spiritual challenges. We're still a broken people living in a broken world with a very motivated enemy. But one of the unique challenges, I think, to Westgate is logistical. We as a congregation are very, very spread out in terms of where we live. I want to show you a picture here. I don't know if you can see that. That's a Google map. There's Boston clear over on the right. And, and those dots that span about 45 miles wide by 35 miles tall, that's Westgate Church. About 115 households who live in 30 different towns. There's nothing wrong with that. But boy, does it make it hard when we try and spend time together meaningfully when we try and share life in a real way where we're sharing our burdens and praying together. Distance can make you know, consistent relationships hard. It can make consistency to things like home groups very hard. And it can also make great challenges for us in terms of our mission. You look at that map, who are we exactly trying to reach with the light of Christ? If you aim at everything, you will hit nothing every time. And that's been one of our challenges as a church trying to live as a gospel-centered community living on mission each day for Christ. Who are we aiming at? It's hard to pinpoint on the map. And if we target one specific town as a church, it's hard to create buy-in for those who live several towns away. Not because they don't love Jesus, but because they don't have much of a natural opportunity or occasion to be in that town they don't live or work there and so on and so on and so what we're trying to do recently as a leadership is is to stop and ask the question what does westgate church really look like in terms of where we live and work and where we spend most of our time when we're not gathered here and then to build our midweek ministries and relationships around the reality of who we actually are. 
our shepherd care, our discipleship, our community and outreach. And to do this, we want to begin thinking about Westgate in terms of five regions. Think of it as a kind of a parish mindset. Five regions. And to begin cultivating identity and partnership among the people who are living in those different regions. So there's a central region which would encompass uh, Natick, Weston, and Wayland. There's an eastern region which takes up a whole lot of towns because a lot of those towns, we only have one or two families in that town. So Wellesley, Needham, Newton, Waltham, Watertown, Belmont, Arlington, Lexington, Walpole, Brighton, Boston, South Hamilton. It's a big space. A southern region, Dover, Sherburne, Westwood, Dedham, Norfolk, Medfield, Stoughton. The west is the blue there, Framingham, Shrewsbury, Westboro. And then the northwest corner, Marlboro, Sudbury, Stowe, Hudson, Concord. Now, we're still dreaming and developing what exactly this is going to look like, but we know that we will organize our shepherd care as elders according to region. So we have a proximity that helps us in overseeing. We also know that we're going to begin to build, uh, build um, our home groups according to region as we move forward. And we know that we want to build relationships in each region through quarterly region-wide activities. We want to get, it doesn't matter if you're in a home group or not, if you live in that region, we want to get all the people in that region together every now and then so they actually know each other and can depend on each other and can serve side by side to be a blessing to their neighborhoods for Christ. And so I invite you to pray with us as we think about trying to take what has been for us one of our biggest challenges logistically and turn it around to make it an asset for the gospel's advance, to organize ourselves according to where we actually are. So pray with us and and start talking with us as we begin to kind of live that out. We want to make the most of what we do for the sake of the gospel, whether we're gathered here in this building or scattered throughout the Metro West. We want to shine the light of Christ faithfully and effectively to everyone around. Because when the world sees Jesus in his church, it has to respond. It has to respond. The world cannot remain indifferent to a church flavored by the gospel. If they are, then we have to ask whether we've lost our flavor or we're blocking our light. And when they see Jesus in us, they will respond in one of two ways. Either persecution toward us or praise toward God. The light of Christ will either make us a beacon or a target. We know that the latter can happen, but we are praying for more and more of the former. What Jesus talks about in verse 16, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. We want people to see Jesus in our lives, to hear Jesus on our lips, to see that there is a solution for the sin and brokenness in this world, that there is a God whose love is stronger than our sin, who has stepped into his own creation to bring us to himself. And we want people to give glory to our Father in heaven by coming to faith 
and repentance and joy in his son by finding the life and love that he alone can give, the life and love that they were actually made for. We want people to bring glory to God through faith in Jesus. And so may we be faithful to shine that light, the light of the gospel, of the glory of God. And may we never stop depending, therefore, on the gospel, which alone can keep us faithful and alone will make us effective for years to come. Let's pray. Gracious Father, this church belongs to you. It is not our church. It is your church and we are your people, your sheep. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to you. That your spirit would fill our hearts with love and joy. As we think about the saving work that Christ has accomplished for us, may we be overwhelmed with gratitude. And may we be eager to make Christ known. May we be eager to apply that grace to our own relationships right here within the congregation. Lord, would you have your way in us? And would you be pleased to keep us faithful and make us fruitful for years to come? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.